another another piece of the attitude which is useful to think about is um you know there is this recognition in you know in the yimby movement that community input um needs to be streamlined you know so this concept of um everybody gets a say in a decision about a project and anyone who wants to can appeal even if it's mm-hmm. just one you know one angry ex-girlfriend can appeal you know that um is is how you get you know is, is how you get projects never to be built We're back. Welcome to Pie for Breakfast. Today, I am speaking with Jillian Pressman. Jillian is the managing director of Yimby Action, or a managing director of Yimby Action, I should say. And uh, that means she's a professional housing activist. So Jillian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Will. It is good to be here. Great to have you. So when I hear the word activist, I'm kind of triggered because I think that an activist is someone who basically sells grievances for a living. Is that is that what you do? Do you sell grievances for a living? Um, we are all old guys with ponytails and we stand by the side of the road with signs and we yell and that's how we do work. Okay, um, yeah. Okay, no, so that's that exactly is, what I thought. <laughs> that is not that is not true. Um I mean, okay, so activism is about i think there's there's kind of an assumption that so you know we do grassroots activism activism is probably a broad term but when i think about grassroots activism and the work that we do it is a recognition that for some issues um in order to get real change you can't just influence one policy you know so let's say you um you know you really want like um you know, marijuana to be legalized in your particular jurisdiction. That's like one policy, you know? So like there's a whole series of tactics that you could do to advance that policy. A lot of it kind of involves like working with existing groups that are already doing stuff that's maybe related. Um, You could do some like lobbying. That's where you get into the lobbying versus activism, you know, made you kind of like direct lobbying to try to petition your legislators to change that, you know, and you know, it might work. So that's kind of one specific thing. When it comes to issues like housing that are really complex, and there's a lot of different laws that are holding it back, you can't just try to lobby for a law here and there, you really have to shift power. And what that looks like is movement building, it looks like you need to get lots of people who believe that Uh, housing is important and you need to get those people to be active and you need to get them importantly, you need to get them to stay active because you can't just again, Hey, all we're all, you know, trying to petition so-and-so legislator to legalize marijuana. So come to this thing. Like that's not enough. You can't just have one mobilization. You need to have lots of different things. And so you need to start creating these communities where people are consistently plugging into all the different opportunities. Um, So that's, that's how we, I guess that's how we think about grassroots activism. It's like everyday people who start to feel like their identity is tied up with this cause and start to like develop like communities and relationships around this cause so that they can be continually activated to try to pass legislation or try to, you know, it's not just legislation, get people elected or show up to like administrative hearings, you know, whatever it takes for a law. So got it. Yeah, that's what that, I think well, about it. it's about power. Okay, yeah, I think that 
that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, I think there, uh, you know, my stereotype of an activist, as I was saying, is basically someone who moralizes, someone who sort of like mm -hmm. grandstands and moralizes. But it sounds like there's a like an activist is somebody who brings about like not just change, not just sort of changing hearts and minds, but like meaningful like policy changes, like attitudinal changes, like you know, much more than just like, hey, here's a slogan, like we're gonna, you know like that that we're going to like get out there you know like stop x hate you know that sort of thing like it's much more like well what are the real policies on the ground um so i didn't actually explain what uh yimby is so you mentioned housing so can you tell us like what what is yimby what is yimby action what is what is you know is yimby i you know some people talk about the yimby movement like what what is yimby so yimby stands for yes in my backyard and it is in contrast to a term more people might be familiar with, which is no, not in my backyard or NIMBYs. And so when it comes to housing, um, what you often get is that, you know, most people kind of recognize that like homes are a thing that people need. And when people are homeless and they don't have homes, it's a kind of deplorable condition to be in and that's not good and people should have homes. And most people kind of recognize that at a broad level. However, when it comes to you know, somebody says, okay, I want to build housing and I want to build, you know, a hundred units of housing right next to you. And it might mean construction for, you know, certain about a period of time. And it'll certainly mean like your neighborhood changes a little bit, you know, your view gets, you know, changes, um, different people are coming into your neighborhood in ways that were not, you know, are, is different. Um, people are like, well, I like housing in theory, but not in my backyard, not right here. Um, and it's very, very common. Um, and it is kind of a, we don't even think it's very, very common. It's kind of just a natural human impulse. Like it's a natural human impulse to be afraid of change and to be afraid of like new things. And um, so, and that has has happened across, uh, you know, across millennia and across humanity. What's unique about the situation that we're in now is that we have, because of the how our economy is clustered, we have some really high growth areas that are like really high opportunities. So the Bay Area is one of them. I mean, maybe, you know, arguably there has never been in the history of humanity a region that is like so rich with opportunity um, as the Bay Area is today. So hugely rich opportunities. So people want to come. And so there's like a huge demand to have people come. And so to meet that demand, you want to build housing so that people can live here. But you match that with the fact that Cal and we can get into this, but California and San Francisco in particular has a whole bunch of laws in place that make it really, really easy to stop housing projects, um, it triggers nimbyism. So you have a huge amount of growth. And then you also have laws in place that like allow any person who doesn't want housing to actually have a lot of power in the process. What you get is people say are empowered to say no to housing. They do say no to housing and you get this massive, massive housing shortage. So the NIMBY movement is um, trying to fix that. And, you know, we are a we show up to housing and say actually yes we do want this in our neighborhood so that's you know that's part of it but b we try to change the process so that nimbys are not so empowered so that we are making decisions about housing not at the level of every you know local neighbors get to decide um so yeah. that's where we get into what i was talking about previously about kind of all the bigger picture policies that we're trying to pass so you mentioned homelessness in there. So is is Yimby about like helping the homeless specifically? Is it about like oh, there's we have a lot of homeless here in the Bay Area, so like let's get them, let's get them into homes. 
Um, or is it broader than that? Or is it like, yes, and, uh, you know, it's like, yes, it's also it's about homelessness, but it's also about like young people who can't start, you know, like, or who feel delayed in starting a family because of this homeownership thing or who have to commute two hours because they can't afford to live where they work. You know, is it is it all of the yeah. above or does it do is it like it's, specifically targeted at, at a particular population? It's definitely all the above. You really need all types of housing to meet the need in a community. And that, that certainly includes like housing for formerly homeless people. That certainly includes like income qualified housing. And that also does include housing at the higher levels of the income spectrum, because, you know, we're still adding jobs at all levels of the market. And so we need to accommodate that. Um, we're also pretty like cautious because often when people get into arguments of like, we like housing, but only this kind of housing, um, it often can actually kill housing overall. So um, for example, like we, we as EMBs, we believe that like we believe in the economy like we believe that like markets and like economic principles are true <laughs> and we can't just ignore them. <laughs> and so um, a lot of times like projects, you know, housing projects, um, that have that are income qualified that say, okay, you know, we're going to reserve X percentage of units for like uh, people who are making below a certain income level. So, you know, deed restricted income qualified housing, like that's expensive because they're not going to pay for themselves. You know, people are by definition not be able to pay kind of the full rent of the place. So we have to like subsidize that. And how do you afford those kind of subsidies? You either get huge amounts of government funding or you get cross subsidization from some of the like higher income units um, can cross subsidize that. And often what happens in the argument is you're like, well, we like housing, but, you know, uh, we only want below market rate housing and it has to be this particular income level. And that's actually just not economically feasible. So what we get is like housing is a clear case of perfect being the enemy of the good, where it's like, well, we only want this particular type of housing, you know, this proposed housing project doesn't include just this housing, it includes like other types of housing, so we don't want it. And then what we end up with is zero units of below market rate housing, <laughs> we don't get anything. So, so that's something like part of the all of the above is a the need is all the above, but also b like we can't actually get uh, the, you know, the hardest to build housing, we actually can't get that unless we build the easier to build housing. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned markets there a couple of times. And um, do we like, can you say a little bit about like, like, is the housing market in San Francisco, like, you know, it's probably not what anyone would call a free market. But could you explain like, why, like, what, like, what's going on? Like, what prevents people from, from, from building more housing? Like, why don't we have you know, housing supply and demand just kind of naturally equilibrate the way you would learn in your Econ 101 class. Like what's, you know, like what prevents this from being just like a normal functioning market the way you would go and buy any good and there's competition that drives down prices and, you know, like what what's going on here? What Why is this so dysfunctional? Um, There's a lot going on. So like I mentioned earlier, this is not just one law that we can pass and call it a day. There's a whole bunch of different things. Um, so where to start? So one is, uh, zoning laws. So, um, these, uh, I think the first zoning law started with like, just out of racism. It was just like towns were starting to plan their, their areas and the white people really did not want to live near the black people, you know, in this area, it's like the white people really did not want to live near the Chinese people. And so they made zoning laws. They said, okay, this is the white area of town. This is the black area of town. And you can build housing for whites here. You can build housing for blacks here. And that was how it is. And there are codes that that's written in, um, that got outlawed <laughs> as racist, which it 
is. Um, and so instead of that, the zoning laws changed to based on density. So it was like, OK, well, this area of town, you can only build single family homes, single detached units. So that's like a house where, you know, only one one family lives. Um, and in this area of town, you're allowed to build apartment buildings where you're, you know, multiple multiple units in a particular building. Um, and a lot of in a very clear cut way, a lot of the white only areas of town became single family only areas of town and the like areas of town, you know, blacks only became, okay, we're allowing apartments here. And we see this pattern over and over again across the country where you have like huge swaths of land um, that are reserved for like this very low density type of housing. And that came out of racism and has racist effects. You know, the people in the low density neighborhoods are overwhelmingly white people and Vice versa. And so in a place like San Francisco, San Francisco has about 75% of San Francisco is single family only zoned. Like it says, this is, you can only build one unit. And that has changed a little bit um, because of some state laws. Now it's single family plus, you can build an accessory dwelling unit. You might be able to build duplex, but like still kind of the base level is like not apartments, not big apartments. Like if you wanted to build a hundred unit apartment, there's like very, very, very small slivers of land in San Francisco where that's even legal because of the zoning code. So that's a part of things. So now you're just reducing the, the possibility of where you can build down by a ton. And then, you know, the other big problem is um, the permitting process. You know, so I mentioned before that places like San Francisco really empower NIMBYs, these voices of no. And so what you'll have is you'll have, um, I mean, San Francisco is really the worst, but it's it's definitely, it's, it's not the only one. This is true in many, many high opportunity areas where, you um, you know, you, you're a developer, you want to build, you know, a housing project, you submit your, you know, you, you submit your permits. Um, and there's a bunch of people you have to check to make sure it's com code compliant, you know, it's fire safety, like all this stuff. And there's professional planners that do that and review that and make sure that like your building is not going to, you know, I don't know, open up the earth or whatever. So that happens. But then a lot of places have what's called discretionary review, which is if a petitioner, so a neighbor or a local organization has concerns about the project, they can appeal the decision by the planning commission and they can ask the supervisor, you know, in San Francisco, it's the supervisors or in other cities at the city council, they can ask, you know, the political body to weigh in. Um, and in places like San Francisco, it's actually written in the charter that if you have, it's something like, if you are one person and you have $400 or you're a neighborhood group, it's free, you can file an appeal for a planning commission decision and the project will go to discretionary review and then the supervisors weigh in on it. And then it becomes a political decision. Then it becomes, well, you know, this supervisor is trying to get elected by this group. And so this group said no. And well, they really like this group. And so, you know, they're going to vote it down. And then this supervisor is getting money from this group. And so it totally takes it out of like the class of professional you know, administer professional planners, and it becomes this discretionary political process. Um, and it's and it's ridiculous in San Francisco. I mean, we have projects that should if the planning commission decided they would probably get their permits in like six months, you know, because you have to review a few things. And, you know, maybe that's even too long, but, you know, six months. But because of the discretionary review process and the ability to appeal and appeal and appeal and appeal, um, you know, a project won't get approved for years, you know, like 10 years, more than that. Um, and then, of course, all of that is expensive, you know, to go through the appeal process. So the economics of the project continue to change and ultimately you get to a point where the project doesn't pencil anymore because you're spending so much like going through this constant review process and it just doesn't make economic sense to build anymore. So um, that's what happens. So you have, you know, zoning laws, you have permitting laws. There's also some like 
bad incentives. There's things like parking requirements. You know, cities will say, okay, you can build a housing project, but for every unit, you need six units of parking. Like there are ridiculous things like that that can get in the way and just A, either delay it or B, just um, make it so, so prohibitively expensive that the project dies. Um, so that's, that's what happens. That's why we can't, it's not just supply and demand. Yeah. So it sounds like based on your description that this was a pretty decentralized thing going on this wasn't any sort of like top-down you know mayor who was like you know back in the 30s he passed this law like it's like this patchwork you know sort of decentralized approach to to this like to to zoning laws and it's kind of stuck with us like over time um so it's uh, yeah I get, I get where you're I, I understand now what you mean by like it's not just one law it's like you know different neighborhoods have their own sort of policies um my you know ultimately this is a podcast I think about about attitudes and about assumptions that we make and about like especially how one generation might hold different attitudes or the same attitudes as previous generations who like who who agrees with the, the housing in San Francisco right now is it like do you think the majority of San Franciscans like a are they conscious of this problem and B, like, do you think that they, does the typical San Franciscan, like, basically agree that we need more housing? Or are they like, no, I like, you know, like, I'm, I'm a landed gentry, like, I, you know, I own my property, I don't want anyone else. Like, it seems to me when I talk to San Franciscans, and I live here, I'm in San Francisco right now, I'm in, the, in a Richmond, a lovely neighborhood. Uh, I think that they're aware that they want more housing. Um, so who, who is like arguing for the status quo? Um... Okay, it's a complicated question. So uh, there's definitely people, there's, there's definitely a camp of people who, you know, I did phone banking for, um, we had Prop D, which was this proposition that would have streamlined, it did not pass, that would have streamlined the permitting process. And I did phone banking yeah. for that. And there was one woman I called and she was like, oh, no, we do not need more housing. It's just, uh, you know, there's so much housing and we just don't have the infrastructure to maintain it. And just uh, no, no way in housing. I mean, there's definitely people like that who just like yeah. fundamentally, and some of that is just, fear of change some of that is just reaction to like you know you were mildly inconvenienced once when you couldn't find parking when you drove downtown and you're like ah there's too many people and you know whatever so um there's definitely those that subset of people i think there's um a other swath of people who are do want to see more housing but they're really falling into the uh it has to be a certain kind of housing attitude mentality yeah, yeah. so they're saying like yes affordable housing yes housing for formerly homeless people but if you add luxury condos you know luxury condos what they do is they gentrify communities mm. um and that you know that's actually like all the evidence shows that actually even adding luxury condos is good um it creates you know it reduces pressure on the market because if those all those luxury people i mean they're rich they're still going to move in they're just going to take yeah. over existing housing stock unless you build something for that but right. the but when you have a housing shortage and you're seeing all the effects of a housing shortage you're seeing like prices go up and up and up you're pe you're seeing people get displaced and then you also see a luxury condo grow up because that's the only building that can pencil in this kind of housing shortage market um you you think it's causative when it's really not they're both actually symptoms of the same thing yeah. so there is that lived experience of being like oh i'm experiencing the effects of a housing shortage i'm seeing luxury condos go up and then i'm seeing and i'm assuming that they're <clears throat> they're causative um and then, you know, but more more pernicious than that, you know, lived experience, which has happened and we have to honor and recognize is then it gets weaponized. Then, you know, that woman who's like, oh, 
we can't have more housing. We don't have enough infrastructure. That woman says, oh, there are some people concerned that luxury condos are gentrifying. I'm going to use that argument. And I'm going to say like, I mean, I would be totally supportive housing, but like the luxury housing, that's evil. And, you know, and, yeah. and that is a big thing in San Francisco. The NIMBYs are yeah, using yeah. like progressive talking points and, um, it, you know, which makes it hard to be a activist, honestly, because like, you know, people think we're Nazis, you know, <laughs> and like, and it sucks. Yeah. Yeah, and you are not. kind of right. Not you personally, but I think maybe do you think Yimbies are are right coded in a way? Like, you know, like you're like, oh, these or like libertarian coded, maybe like, you know, they're like, oh, they're trying to argue. They're saying things like we need free markets, you know, so. <laughs> um, You know, I mean, we we identify as a big tent. There are definitely people who are like libertarian leaning who kind of are you know, see this as an area where government regulation has gone awry, which it has, you know, there's also people who are like, I want to see more housing built. And like, once I started diving into, you know, more like low income housing built. And once I started diving into the issue, I I realized, you know, I looked to the academic evidence to realize like, we need to build housing at all levels. And we can't just try to build one kind of housing because that, that actually just kills all housing. So I think there's I think there's that I would say another another piece of the attitude, which is useful to think about is, um, you know, there is this recognition in, you know, in the Yimby movement that community input um, needs to be streamlined, you know, so this concept of um, everybody gets a say in a decision about a project and anyone who wants to can appeal, even if it's mm-hmm. just one, you know, one angry ex-girlfriend can appeal, you know, that um, is is how you get, you know, is, is how you get projects never to be built. Um, and this is something I think they're talking, you know, there's like reporters in the national stage that are talking a lot about this, you know, more about this, you know, it's true for housing. It's also true for things like like clean energy projects and transit, where if you have a process where everybody gets to weigh in, especially at that hyper local level, especially the next door neighbor, um, it doesn't ever get done and it doesn't ever get built. And, you know, so like uh, an analogy I like is like, you know, if, if, if people asked you, do you want your street to be a through street, you know, so traffic is allowed to drive through, or do you want it to be like, you can only go on the street if, um, if you live there, like most people would be like, no, I don't want random people going, you know, driving down my street, blasting their music, you know, potentially like causing traffic problems. Like, no, like this should not be a through street, but what they do very importantly is they don't ask you that they're just like okay these are the three streets because we need to like have traffic go through and these are the streets that like you know it is fine to have it be a closed off street or whatever and like that's how housing and other these other big infrastructure projects they need to be it needs to be let like professional planners make decisions um and don't ask the community to weigh in because when you ask when you like let the community weigh in on every hyper local decision you're just gonna get paralysis you know and, and that's not to say that like professional planners should be uh you know act in a vacuum you know i think we're very much in support of like there needs to be community-wide input like at the top level you know there needs to be decisions about like okay here's broadly how our community is going to look and that should involve as many people as possible and that's great once that's established there can't be then this these, these discretionary appeals. Like once the rules are set, then the process has to run because otherwise it gets like slowed down. And that really conflicts with a, uh, and this is, you know, this is San Francisco's like, you know, cardinal sin. It really conflicts with this idea that like local input and listening to communities is inherently good. 
you know, like I heard, I used to work in an organization that was like a health equity organization. We did health education and we talked like ad nauseum about, you know, listening to communities and listening to the voices of the people affected. And like, when it comes to like designing a health education curriculum, like, hell yeah. Like, you know, I don't know what it's like to be like a trans seventh grader, but like a trans seventh grader does. So like, we should listen to them when it comes to getting things built that affect lots of people listening to the community has its limits <laughs> and you know we have reached those limits and we have seen the like actually devastating really really anti-progressive effects of those limits yeah. and so um that's i think a big attitudinal shift where this like glamorization of listening to communities it needs to be tempered a little bit yeah that brings up a really good point which is that a, a couple a couple points one is that um that you know like like I think like the term like you know what what does it mean to be progressive here because you know it's like well is does it mean like is to be progressive does it always mean to be more democratic and I think like this is a good example of where like no it doesn't like you can be overly democratic in this stuff like democratic means that if everyone has a voice including on things that you know that they don't know much about or things that don't directly affect them then you know that will lead to anti-progressive in the sense of like uh, fewer buildings being built you know, outcomes, you know, and if fewer buildings are being built, and this is something we can talk about, um, uh, you know, if fewer housing units are being built, that, like, that really affects people, you know, like, that affects young people, that affects immigrants, that affects poor people, that, I mean, like, who, who, like, who is really being affected by this, you know, by this overly democratic approach that, like, doesn't want to build housing? Like, who, who are, who are people on the losing end of this? Like, I would argue, and you can, you can weigh in here, uh, that it's, you know, it's it's young people, the people I just said, it's young people, it's immigrant families, it's people who come here, they want to open a coffee shop, you know, they want to start a life here. Um, and they're just being systematically excluded because, you know, because the primary, you know, expense here is housing. And they just, you know, they just can't, they can't meet that. So they can't even get started. And so that leaves us with this just wealthy but aging less dynamic less exciting population that lives 100%. lives in our most economically productive you know ironically the most economically productive regions are our cities uh do you agree with that definitely agree with that i would add you know like a lot of the service workers um that power our economy mm -hmm. can't actually afford to live here so they're you know maybe they can and they're overcrowding in you know, these tiny apartments, which is certainly unsafe. And, you know, I think we saw the effects of that in COVID where just like spread like wildfire in these communities because there's like 11 people in a studio um, or they're driving really far, you know, so people are contributing to the local economy, can't afford to live here. So they, you know, commute three hours every day. Um, and that's bad for, you know, that's bad for public health. Like if you're a super commuter, which means you're driving like 90 minutes or more every day, you're twice as likely to get divorced. You know, it's bad for your, it's bad wow. for your family. Um, and it's really bad for the environment. You know, there's this whole environmental piece of it, which is like increasing carbon emissions, increasing air pollution, increasing destruction of natural land because we're, you know, sprawling housing farther and farther away because we, we can't build it near urban cores. So um, it's really bad for the environment. And, you know, it, the environment is also bad for people like when you have things like air pollution you know it's not it's not the you know the rich person who lives in St. Francis Wood who has the effects of air po pollution it's people who are you know put like pushed to um areas that are right near the freeway like those are the effects of air pollution you know so like environmental um environmental destruction is also you know environmental racism and it's also very very anti-progressive when you think about that so yes it is those populations that bear the brunt um you know definitely disproportionately people of color 
um, you know, definitely, you know, not even not even taking into account homelessness, which is what happens when housing prices rise and you don't have enough housing supply. Um, people just fall out of the market entirely and they just are not, you know, they don't have a home and they're homeless. Um, and that certainly disproportionately affects, uh, you know, low income people, people of color. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can sort of pivot to the sort of the other end of the spectrum and talk about like what an ideal city would look like and not necessarily an ideal San Francisco, although we can get to that. But I, a lot of people hold up Houston as an example of like, mm -hmm. this is a city, Houston, Texas has, uh, I think either minimal or no zoning laws. And yeah. is that, I mean, is that what do, do we want? You know, and I think that like, I want to ask this because I, I imagine a lot of people could say a lot of San Franciscans who are not on board with the MB might say something like, well, I don't want to, I don't want us to be Houston. So is Houston what what SFMB wants? Like, do we want every city to be Houston, Texas, or uh, what's like what, what would what would like what would it ideally look like? I don't think it would be Houston. I mean, what Houston has is a minimum of zoning laws, and that's that's great. That makes it easier to build, um, and certainly the affordability is much better uh, in Houston than it is here. Um, Houston's also very sprawled. You know, it's very yeah. very sprawled out and very car dependent. Yes. You know, and I think when we think about ideal city, it's dense housing near jobs. That's kind of what it comes down to because um, near jobs, but also, you know, also other opportunities, also services, also the things that people need. You know, you should be able to have dense housing near those. Um, you know, schools is a big thing, like great schools. People should be able to have, there should be lots of housing near great schools. And so people can live, you know, in these high opportunity areas. Um, so, you know, it's it's though it's really about like um, what we have done for a long time. Is, and again, this started with whites area of, area of town and blacks area of town. The white area of town is where you get you get great schools, you get all the jobs, you get like public parks, you get you know the the nice amenities, um, and you know you also build that social and political capital is built there. You know because when people interact in an area with opportunity, they you know they feed off of each other. And then on the black areas of town, those became areas that you know did have apartment building, but also got the toxic waste dump, and also got the freeway driving through it, and also got shitty schools, and also got you know the the like poor end of the stick when it comes to amenities. Um, and so we're really about um, not taking the fight for housing. So right now, the only place you can build housing often in areas um, in a lot of cities is those, you know, poor, like formerly redlined areas of town. Um, and, you know, we are not interested in taking the fight uh you know, for housing where it's currently being proposed in areas like that, we want to take the fight for housing in those high opportunity areas. So um, those towns that have like pushed housing out to other places and remain mm -hmm. low density and kind of hoarded opportunity. Um, so that's what our ideal city would look like. You know, I mean, there's, you know, could get into transit and, you know, we definitely have a lot of transit people and bike people. And, you know, I personally, like, I personally hate cars. I would love a city that doesn't have cars. Um, and, you know, overall, like there will be some room for cars, but I think, you know, the idea is that you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to drive because like everything you need when it comes to jobs, when it comes to opportunity, when it comes to, you know, social interaction in parks and nice amenities are all like within a dense area and you, you're able to live there affordably. So, yeah. So I think that, that touches on a really good point, which is that, uh, 
that density doesn't necessarily mean that we all live in a concrete jungle and we all, you know, we just live in these like mega structures with eight lane highways surrounding our like, you know, gray buildings, you know, in this kind of like, you know, like, socialist dystopia that's not at all what we're going for like it might look something like like we would have a lot of public parks we would have still some opportunity for cars we might have also bike lanes we might have you know all this transit stuff but like you can have dense housing and beautiful beautiful cities and shiny happy people and i think that's what i want it would look something maybe i haven't been to singapore but it would look maybe something like singapore which has like i want to say singapore has like 60 percent of their of their area is like dedicated to like parks. Like it's just, and it's a very yeah. dense, it's a very dense city. And it's like, you know, I know that when they, you know, when they want to, you know, film like futuristic looking cities, they have to go to Singapore. Like they don't go to yeah. the United States to film movies with futuristic looking, you know, for science fiction movies, they go to Singapore. And it's really a shame um, because, uh, you know, it's like, why can't we have nice, beautiful things in the United States? And it's like, because we're stuck with these legacy attitudes and these outmoded ways of, of, you know, planning cities and, you know, this, um, yeah, this attitude, like, you know, density is bad. Density leads to ugliness. And it's like, no, yeah. no, it, it doesn't actually. Um, so actually, and I, I want to, so my, my co-host Nathan Bradshaw is not, uh, not with us today, but, uh, he lives in Vermont and, you know, I had this conversation with with him. Uh, you know, not on the podcast, but but at one point about how um, you know I think that cities should be dense, but does that mean that everywhere should be dense? Like, do we want to like just turn like Vermont into like a super dense place, or can we still have like nice New England rural towns? <laughs> um, I think if you have uh, if you have the type of density that we're looking for, which is when there are high opportunity areas, you know, there's abundant housing in those areas. So everyone can take, more people can take advantage of those opportunities. What you'll get is you'll actually get more areas that are not dense. You'll get more preservation of open space and you'll get, um, you know, right now we have like, I mean, the Bay Area, you know, you have, obviously you have San Francisco, you have Oakland, and then you have like these like little, you know, Tracy and these like little like clusters of, cities that have popped up because um, people can't afford to live near their job in San Francisco. So they live out in Tracy. And then a lot of people have to live out in Tracy because a lot of people can afford to live in San Francisco. And then you get this kind of cluster. And like, I don't know, maybe Tracy is a bad example. I don't know anything about Tracy. Maybe it's a beautiful place. So no knock on it. But like that shouldn't have to happen. You know, it shouldn't have to happen where people are forced out to form clusters in other areas. Like, you know, there's parts of the Central Valley that really should just be agriculture, you know, and people really shouldn't live there. And um, or it should just be natural land that's untouched and people really shouldn't live there. But, you know, these like these like little pockets of density have sprung up because the areas where we really should have dance density are not, um, you know, are, are over-regulating housing and making it impossible to build housing. So I think what we would see in an ideal world is like more clusters around areas and then, and then large, er you know, areas of untouched land or areas of small, you know, towns. And, you know, we're certainly in Yimby, we're certainly not of the belief that like, you have to live near density. <laughs> We're definitely the belief that like you should be able to have maximum freedom. And that includes being able to live near density if you want to, you know, being able to live right near your job if you want to. But this also includes, you know, if you want to go live in a cabin in the woods, like go live in a cabin in the woods. And like, you know, that sounds okay. great. It's just, it's just, it's just, it shouldn't be that like you should have to do that because you have no other option. 
like you shouldn't have to live in a pod like in like a like a like a, a micro a micro home you know like where you're just everyone is just like single and childless and lives in a micro home and like gets all their protein from bugs that's not that's not necessarily your ideal vision there of the this, world like I don't know. I don't want to knock on this, but there is this this guy I met kind of early in UMB stuff who was like, I want to make van life more of a thing, like to, you know, to really solve the housing shortage. Yeah, we're going to get lots, just, lots of people on board people with the, in vans, yeah, like, you know, and it's like, like yeah. awesome. If people want to live in vans, like more power to them. But yeah. like this, people are not living in vans because they want to. People are living in vans because they can't afford housing near their job. And like, yeah. that's bad, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. I, so, so I, yeah, I think this gets to a really fundamental point, which is that really this is about like, about freedom. It's like, it's like you should have, you know, in a, in a free country, you should be able to live in our cities in the United States without being a millionaire, you know? Um, and now, yeah, there are some cities where that's true, like Houston, but like, it shouldn't be the case that like, you know, some of the uh, some of the cities where the smartest and most talented people go, and, you know, San Francisco is one of them, I think. Um, uh, you know, you might say Los Angeles, you might say Washington, D.C., you might say New York, you might say Boston, you know, and many other places, like, are just off limits to this. And that that's not, like, that's not really compatible with the idea that, like, oh, we're this free, we're this free country. It's like, well, you, you know, like, the freedom has to be, like, it has to be, a, it has to be a practical freedom, you know, and it's like, if, if like, if the, the best places are off limits to everybody, that's, that's not, that's not real. you know, there, there's a kind of, something's missing in that conception of, of what it means to be free and in, in a free, in a free country. Um, yeah. I mean, we have prior to, I guess some would argue that like the freedom to tell your neighbor to not build housing near yeah. you is a fundamental freedom and you know the freedom to dictate what your local community looks like um is a fundamental freedom um and i think we are arguing that no actually <laughs> the like in a society there needs to be like a higher you know a higher sort of societal perspective when it comes to like what freedom is and what allows maximum freedom and you know neighbors dictating their hyper hyper local planning processes is like does curtail freedom of others, um, you know, including, pro you know, there's some like righty people who like this stuff because, because of the property rights thing, you know, like if you own a plot of land, if you own a mansion in San Francisco and you wanted to build instead of your mansion on your property, you wanted to build a tower, no fucking way. You would not be allowed to do that. <laughs> um, and is that, you know, do you actually have property rights in that context? Like not really, you know, so there is that angle too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. So I think we've, we've covered a, a lot of ground. Um, is there any other aspect of Yimbyism that you want to mention? Or actually, actually, I do have one. Um, so I think that uh, now there, there's a kind of, there's a kind of Yimby activist, uh, I think that is like very present online. And, mm -hmm. you know, they tweet a lot about, about Yimby stuff. Um but, uh, or, you know, or they, they go to Facebook and do it, but like, what, what is really like helpful, you know, like how, how do we get, like, what should you do if you want to be involved in, in Yimbyism? I mean, it can't just be tweeting about it, right? Um, tweeting about it is not very helpful and sometimes counterproductive. Um, so yes, it should not just be tweeting about it. Um, I guess one exception to that is, well, okay, so let me back up. So, you know, we talked about an activist as someone who, like plugs into policies that are actually going to have leverage, you know, and gets active to change these policies that are actually going to have leverage. So um, there's categories of policies. Um, 
you know, one is like legislation. So, you know, legislation gets proposed that frees up, um, that reduces zoning re restrictions. So, you know, we have less low density zoning in places and it's, you know, it, it legalizes housing in more places. Mm -hmm. um, you know, legislation gets proposed that streamlines the permitting process, which I talked about. So when these things get proposed, um, it's important to have people uh, mobilize for them. And what that means is, you know, Sure, you can tweet about that, you know, if it gets other people engaged, that's fine. But really what you're really trying to do is target the decision makers. You're really trying to like contact legislators and say to legislators, hey, you know, I'm Will, I live in your district and I really want to see this passed. Like that type of thing is really powerful. So um, what we do a lot of is like trying to get people to attend to hearings. We're trying to get people to like send an email to their legislators or trying to get people to make phone calls or whatever it is. But that type of stuff um, is really powerful and really makes a difference, especially when it's local issues like that, where just you don't get a ton of engagement on local issues. So like a state legislator for an average bill, we'll hear from like 17 people on that bill, you know, like across the whole yeah. state, like it's like not, you know, it's the numbers are pretty small, so you can make a big difference. So I think that's one category of things is like, as there is pro housing legislation, you know, speaking up to the decision makers about that. Um, the second big category is elections. Um, so because this is such a complex issue, we really need people in office who are going to be like, I'm a pro housing person, and I'm going to propose bills that help close all these loopholes, I'm going to, um, you know, advance bills, I'm going to like, you know, support different things. And like, I'm going to navigate the complexity of the law. And so to get people elected, um, there's a lot of volunteering involved in that, you know, there's a lot of like phone banking and canvassing and door knocking and um you know and that's what that's what campaigns need to win is they need boots on the ground um so plugging into a campaign and doing a night of phone banking or doing a night you know showing up to a canvas like can be really powerful um this might be the place where tweeting can actually be useful if you tweet out like for example the yimby voter guide if you're to tweet out the voter guide and be like hey not sure to vote for vote along these lines like that can yeah. actually help because we do need to get votes in that way um, so that's a big part of it. And then, you know, the other category is kind of administrative advocacy, administrative decisions. So like right now, how uh, San Francisco's and all Bay Area cities are designing um, what's called their housing element, which is their plan for there's it's their plan for their zoning code. So it's their plan for like, how are they going to build housing over the next eight years? Um, so it's kind of the like small window for an eight year period. And there's all sorts of hearings right now where they're designing the housing element. Um, and we really need people to plug into that. Um, so this is what I mentioned about like, you know, we want lots of community input when it comes to this part of the process, when it comes to designing the housing element. And then hopefully what happens is we have a nice housing element that accommodates abundant housing. And then the housing just gets built after that. And you don't have like neighbors here and there, you know, pushing it down. Um, so all those things, you know, legislation and elections and administrative, um, that's like all of that is really valuable. Um, the best way to like plug into that is to, you know, like follow, I mean, all these opportunities come up here and there. So to like, you know, follow, yeah, follow Yimby on Twitter or follow, you know, sign up for the Yimby mailing list or, you know, plug, we have a Slack um, for members, you know, so plug into the Slack um, is to stay connected that way. And I would, I would recommend that for not just Yimby, for, but for like any issue that people are interested in is like, you're, it's really hard to know as, you know, I'm a professional political activist and like, there's stuff that's on my ballot that I'm like, I don't, 
I don't get it. I don't know what this is. Like, it's really hard to kind of navigate all the complexity. And so I think the best way to do that is to find a group that you trust and like follow them and plug into them. And when they send out action alerts, like take action, you know, and follow it. Yeah. So I probably should have gotten to this a little earlier, but I just want to touch on this because I think it's a very, very relevant thing, especially here in San Francisco, which is where like where is the fight happening? Like there's there's kind of three levels that I can think of. There's you have the kind of local level, you have uh the state level, you have the federal level, maybe those three levels. I don't know, maybe there's maybe there's other ways to slice it. Um, but uh does this like how like what's what's the deal with that? Like is everything done at the local level or where does the state come in? You know, if you don't succeed with City Hall, can you go down to Sacramento? Can you go to like the state capitol? You know, is that is that an approach? Um I would say the most important level in an issue, in the issue of housing, with a caveat, is the state level, because um, the state, you know, federal, like the federal government can kind of do incentives, they can do like, if you have less restrictive zoning, we'll give you more transportation money, or they can do like little carrots and sticks like that. But it's just really not decided at that level um, of government. So it's really the state, it's really state and local. And local governments, you know, a lot of these towns, like, were created to keep people out. You know, there's like these tiny towns, you know, in the peninsula, the Bay Area has 101 cities and towns, there's a lot of these like tiny towns that like, they were created because a group of people were like, we don't like, we don't like these other people, we're going to form our own town. And so they're created and because of the tax structure they're kind of incentivized not to build housing and so like the local governments are just not really set up to like want to embrace housing so what you really need is the state government to kind of override local legislation and say um you know no you have to build certain kinds of projects you know no we're going to override local zoning codes in different areas and you know so like it's really the state level that like the most important stuff can really pass um you know and that's a because we have so many small cities and towns that doing it town by town doesn't make sense. Um, but it's also because, again, towns are just really not set up to embrace housing. Like it's just they're not incentivized yeah. for a number of reasons. So the state is really important. That said, the caveat is that, um, you know, in in like civics class, you'll learn there's three levels of government and they're kind of distinct. And like once you actually start doing politics, the like there's so you see the blurriness of it. So to really influence state legislation, you need to be locally powerful because your state legislators, they're responsive to their local constituencies. They're really responsive. To, you know, the mayor has a lot of influence. The mayor of San Francisco has a lot of influence on like the San Francisco delegation and the state house. You know, she's a local government person, but like there's there's a lot of political like back and forth that happens there. So to influence state government, you need to form local groups and you need to make noise locally. You, know, you need to like plug into local elections and plug into local hearings and, you know, try to get some things passed at the local level because that that's the only way that you're going to um, have the power to influence the state level. So that was a long way of saying, um, yes, local, yes, state, sort of federal, not really, but but why not? You know, if there's like, there are a few federal bills that are um, being proposed and we've certainly like supported them and tried to get people to send in letters for them. Yeah, I wonder, I want to bring up a point that um, uh, the uh, the writer who, who's, who's a, I think a friend of Yimby, uh, Matt Iglesias talks mm-hmm. about, um, which is that, it seems like the state level has the advantage that it doesn't feel as backyardy as the local level. You're like, oh, like, like everyone can kind of get on board with the idea that like, yeah, California needs more housing, but it's not going to yeah. necessarily like obstruct, you know, my view of, you know, the beach or, you know, whatever it is, whatever it may be. It's like, it doesn't feel like quite in my backyard. So, you know, like maybe, you know, just, just at a, at a fundamental psychological level that, uh, 
it maybe th- yeah th- that it's it's a little easier to get things done when it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're the one paying the cost for you know this you know in some sense benevolent policy of wanting to build more housing just a yeah. just a thought no i mean that's that's true it's it's a factor of human psychology again where it's like you know they say all politics are are local and again you know nimbyism is something that's in everybody and nobody likes construction and no and everybody is uh, you know somewhat afraid of change especially if they've been in a community for a really long time and so like it's just the local level psych- psychologically is going to be disincentivized to build housing and so like getting things done at higher levels of government is really key um you know like you mentioned Singapore, um, you know, like Japan, you know, Tokyo has a lot of density and a lot of Japanese cities have a lot of density and they actually decide their housing at the federal level. You know, the federal wow. government decides housing and like, and you get a lot of density in that context because they're making yeah. decisions to like what's best for all of the country as opposed to like, well, what is, you know, Janet, my local neighbor, you know, want to see in her neighborhood. So. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, because that that's introducing like central planners, but it's like the central planners are like at least making the right decision, which is like, you know, to like, you know, do things that keep the supply in line with demand. Um, so I think we're, yeah, we're about at time, but um, thank you very much for coming. And I, maybe I just wanted to ask you like a final question. So let's say somebody wanted to get more involved. And I mean, you mentioned obviously following, following SFMB on Twitter, following YIMBY, but what, like who should, and I, and I mentioned Matt Iglesias, but are there like, is there like a good, like start here? Like if you want to learn about housing, about how to get, about what's going on, about like, what, what should I read? Like, where should I go? Where's like, what's the first, like, how do I, like, I want to educate myself on this issue. So where um, our organization is Yimby Action, and you can always okay. go to yimbyaction.org. Um, okay. If you want to, you can go to yimbyaction.org slash join to like sign up as a member and kind of get connected that way. Um, but we have on our like main page, we have some like top resources. We have some, you know, links to more information about this. So, um, so you can certainly always start there um, in terms of like writers to follow, you know, Matt Iglesias is good um, on housing. He kind of wrote the first book, uh, The Rent is Too Damn High, that sort of talked about the housing shortage. Um, Jerusalem Demses is at The Atlantic. She's another one. Um, there's Ezra Klein at New York Times and um, Derek, uh, Derek Johnson at The Atlantic. They are kind of talking a lot about this abundance concept and kind of what, what it'll take to build quickly. So they're doing a lot of great work on this. Um, and really most academic stuff that you'll read on housing is pretty aligned with this. Um, but I would definitely start there. And, and again, yimbyaction.org slash join is like the best way to kind of plug in and be part of the community. And I would say, so Yimby Action is the umbrella organization. SFYMB is like one, a chapter of Yimby Action. Um, but we're also in 17 states right now with 43 chapters. So we're in, we're in Atlanta, we're in, you know, um, Orlando, Florida, we're in Denver, we're in Dallas, we're in, we're not in Vermont yet. Um, and maybe we shouldn't be, we should, maybe we should leave Vermont untouched, but we are yeah. in, in um, actually most states. So check us out and um, you'll probably find a local chapter that you can plug into. All right. Jillian Pressman, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Will. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.